Well, it has truly been a joy to be with you all, walking through an overview of the Torah and then specifically through this glorious book of the book of Genesis. And I've enjoyed the study and I've enjoyed our interaction. And truly, as Paul says, it's been mutually edifying of our faith. And I am grateful to study the word and then to teach it, but then to also talk with you all afterwards and throughout the week of just what the Lord has been doing through the scriptures as he always does. And so truly I say that the blessing and the joy is all mine. It really is. And so our desire is to finish this portion of Genesis well in the way that God intends, in the way that not only bolsters and establishes our soul in the truth, but most importantly, exalts him. And to that end, will you join with me in prayer so that our God would be honored. Our God and Father, may your redemption, may your profound activity be put on display tonight. May the glory and the wonder of the reality that while some mean it for evil, you mean it for good. May that dynamic of evil to good and all that that means and the boldness and uniqueness that that is be understood and grasped by us better so that we would give you all the praise and glory knowing your character, knowing your ability, knowing your purpose all the more. And may that cause us to worship And love the gospel, which is the culminating point, the highest expression, the definitive hinge of that truth, evil to good by God alone. And so we ask that you would be honored tonight. Give us joy as we study your word. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Make us understand its depth and its breadth. And may we be bombarded with the truth this evening so that we would be better worshipers and better those who adore you and your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we've been seeing and understanding the assertion of God, profound from the beginning, definitive from the beginning. He is the creator. We are not. We are created. We are finite. He is infinite. He is immutable. He is the one who has jurisdiction and reign and sovereignty unchallenged and immutable and irrefutable over all things. We know that. And he demonstrates that that rule is prevailing and will overcome all, even when Satan challenges it with a coup over creation. He declares that Satan's opening move is his last move, that he signed his death warrant at that very moment, that the ones he used, that is man, to try to overthrow God, God would use man to overthrow Satan in ironic retaliation. And we see that in Genesis 3.15, that there is a promise, an agenda of God revealed, redemption to demonstrate that thesis of creation that God rules and he will rule always and that rule never changes and therefore throughout redemptive history God's plan is to preserve a line of seed, a line of those redeemed, ultimately culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ the seed who will crush the serpent's head and yes that will inflict pain upon the seed that is prophetic of the cross nevertheless Satan will be defeated and God will be glorified and that is the agenda carried out. And God, in the book of Genesis, has launched that plan. Now, having said that, I think there is an important point that needs to be made that I haven't made yet, but it helps us to understand the glories of Scripture and the glories of God. Namely, sometimes people wonder, especially in America, well, you got Genesis 3.15, you got the plan unveiled, then why didn't God just take a metaphorical foot and stomp on the serpent right then and there. Done. Especially in our culture with Amazon two-day shipping, we would appreciate that. You know, we made the order. Now God deliver. Same day. Beat out Amazon. And that makes plenty of sense to us. And it would make perfect sense if the world revolved around you or me. Yeah. Absolutely. 
That would be a very logical plan if we were making up the story and we were God and we wanted things to be convenient for us, like Amazon two-day shipping. But we're not the center of this plan. The plan has never been about us. The plan has never been to satisfy us. The plan has never been about our convenience. The plan has always been about God and his son, whom he has destined to showcase in full glory. And so the reason why the story doesn't just end in Genesis 3.16 is because God wants to do this in a way that magnifies him and his son. And so you don't just have Genesis 3.15 and then the next verse, it's over. You have Genesis to Revelation so that God will be glorified and that we would enjoy that and know that and understand that and love that and love him. And so along that very line, what we see in the book of Genesis is glory after glory as God carries out this agenda, this agenda of Genesis 3.15. He has carried it out, even though there is murderous intent from Satan, a diabolical plan that we see in Cain. He carries this out, even though there is satanic assault as the sons of God attempt to pervert the daughters of men. He carries this out reconfiguring the whole world in a flood. That's how far God will go to execute his plan. He will change the world to make sure it goes through. And even more than that, he will institute nations to restrain other nations so that his plan will continue on. And that gives rise to the need, post-Tower of Babel, for the need for one nation to have an international impact. And we know that's the nation of Israel. That's where Israel comes in. And so God entrusts to this nation, the nation of Israel, precious promises. We call that the Abrahamic covenant. Three major promises therein, land, seed, and blessing. And all of them relate back to Genesis 3.15 and creation. Why do you need a land? For Israel to witness to the world and ultimately to be the platform to demonstrate that God will make the whole earth right, even as he gives Israel the land. Why do you need the promise of seed to Israel? Because that relates to the seed promise of Genesis 3.15. And what about blessing? Well, what did God do when he originally created the earth? He blessed it. And so therefore, Israel will be a blessing and all nations will be blessed in Israel through that seed so that God will prove that what he set out to originally do, he will always be successful and conquer. And within these promises and alongside of these promises is an immaculate theology that Israel is to proclaim to the world to help the world and Israel itself understand these promises better, to know all that God is doing in the full weight of glory that he is doing it in. And so they have been equipped in the first generation to understand the notion of faith. Faith isn't a feeling. Faith isn't a work. Faith is trusting God to do it all. Therefore, God does it all. That is what faith does. It amplifies grace. It is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. It is by faith so that it would be by grace. And that's the first pillar. The first generation of Abraham demonstrates that core theological truth. And then the next generation, we learned that, yes, Jacob schemes, but God redeems. That God is always with us. He has not abandoned us. He has not just left this world when things went wrong and just let it go to pieces on its own. No, he is intimately involved in every single person's life and every single affair of this world, step by step by step by step, and even more for those whom he has chosen and for his own people, he fights for them. He is with them to fight for them. That's the very name Israel. The very nation is named after that theological reality. We believe in a God who is with us and fights for us. That's the second generation. And in Genesis 37 through 50, we have the final generation. The final generation. The generation of Jacob, and we have individuals like Joseph and Judah in that mix. And we have a final lesson. And you could think of it this way. There is an important piece of the puzzle here that needs to be settled. This is the final piece of the puzzle that kind of puts the whole picture together. You could think of it this way. Okay, we believe. We have faith. And we put it all in the God who acts and does. And what does he do? Well, he's with us and he fights for us. 
But what does he fight for? What is he fighting to accomplish? What is he fighting to achieve? What's the end goal? Now, we need to answer that question. And the last part of Genesis, Genesis 37 through 50, accomplishes that task. What is God fighting for? What is God fighting for? There's a lot of things to fight for. What is God fighting for? We're familiar with what Joseph does and says in his reflection on the events of Genesis 37 through 50. You know this verse well, Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph's reflection is profound. It is perceptive, and it is programmatic of the entire working, every detail, every aspect, every angle of Genesis 37 through 50. You want to know what our God is fighting for? You want to know what he's fighting to accomplish? It's simple. He's fighting to turn evil to good. He's fighting to turn evil to good. That is the truth of God. That is the message of Israel. That is our cry. Our God is with us. He has not abandoned this world. And he is here fighting every step of the way. And here's what he's fighting for. To turn evil to good. That is what our God does. And that really is a profound idea. It's frankly an inconceivable idea in our culture. It is a transcendent idea. Let me put it this way. Sometimes I analyze film and literature, especially given my profession, and sometimes I observe that in Asian movies particularly, and Asian literature that here's how the ending happens. And the ending is very predictable, frankly, and it's really disturbing for Americans. And that is this. Everyone dies. All the main characters die. It's inconceivable to us. If And for me, because I know this is going to happen, I'm just waiting, you know. Sometimes the main character dies in the first five minutes. It's, It's amazing how fast they kill these people. And in the movies and such. And they just kill them off. And you think, that would never happen in America. Usually, it's written in people's contracts and acting. I can't die. I don't like to die. In Asia, it's written in your contract. You will die if we think if we like you. That's the way it works. And yeah, it's kind of humorous to think about, but it reflects a worldview. It reflects a worldview, and the worldview is simple. There is no redemption. There is no redemption. You just die. You just die. And at best... That resolves something, even though technically it resolves nothing. Resolves nothing. It's a worldview right there, death. No one can fathom that there could actually be real victory over evil. The victory in some cultures is just that you succumb. That's it. And you accept it. And of course, Westerners, although we laugh at what the other cultures may perceive and contrive, but in our quest to be sophisticated, now we've done really some of the same things. People talk about, oh, the bad guy won. That's the new ending. How is that a good ending? When the bad guy wins, you don't want to root for the bad guy. How twisted is that? But we have those, and sometimes in our literature and our movies, and sometimes it's this, oh, they sacrificed for nothing. But at least it was a sacrifice. Folks, if it's a sacrifice for nothing, it's for nothing. Nothing happened. It's worthless. Why? Because it's for nothing. And sometimes they say, you know what the ending is? The ending is nothing. We don't even know what happens at the end. You get to make up your ending. And when I see those kinds of things, I'm like, oh, they didn't pay the writer enough. They didn't pay him enough to actually think of an ending, so it's just choose your own ending. Great. And we think that can be sophisticated, and our culture thinks that's, that's very high and lofty. But really, all of those, all of those are just upsetting. We're upset when we see the trite ending, oh, they lived happily ever after, because that to us seems completely unrealistic. And so we trade it with all these other endings in our culture, which are equally unsatisfying. Why? Because we don't want just 
evil to win. We don't want evil just to be contained. We don't just want evil to be partially dealt with. We don't even just want evil to be defeated. That's not good enough. We want evil to be swallowed up by victory. For good to truly triumph and prevail. That's what we want. But we can never get it. Every time we even try to come up with a fictional ending. We can't ever hit that. We can't ever come up with it. We can't ever conceive of it. Why? Because we don't know. We don't know. In our heart of hearts and in our wildest imagination and in our wildest conception, we don't know how to turn evil to good. Just can't be done. We can make evil less. We may be even able to restrain the effects of evil. But we can't turn evil to good. Sometimes we wish we could. Sometimes when our children say, if I take this medicine, will it actually make me better? The shortcut answer that we want to give is yes, so that it's less of a battle. But if you're really being technical, medicine doesn't make you better. It just mitigates the damage. That's all we can do. We, we can't actually reverse something. We can't actually make you better. We can't change evil to good. We wish we could, but we don't have that ability. And so everything that we write and everything that we conceive of and everything we imagine, it can never hit that. It's unrealistic for us. And that's right. It's unrealistic for us, but not for our God. Our God alone, he turns evil to good. Our God alone has the ability to make evil good. And what we will see in Genesis 37 through 50 over and over and over from every angle, with every layer, from every aspect, all different kinds of dynamics, with every kind of variety, he turns evil to good. He has that art down because he is pure good and all things must be made right by him in the end. He is driven to do it and he will show that to the nation of Israel and entrust that truth to the nation of Israel so that they will proclaim it. And even as they proclaim it, we must know that what our culture does not understand and what our culture cannot conceive of, but what our people all over the world desire, what they are desperate to know, we have because our God turns evil to good. That is what our God does. And so in kind of four parts, I want to outline Genesis 37 through 50 all the way showing time after time after time our God turns evil to good. That's what he does. Just as Joseph said, he understood. He saw it well. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And with that in mind, let's just talk about that first heading now, that first scene now, and you could say it this way. It's Jacob. Jacob, evil to good. God turns evil to good for Jacob. Chapter 37, that's where we are. Genesis chapter 37. As verse 1 explains, this is now the next generation, the third generation, the final pillar and piece of the theological puzzle that God is establishing for the nation of Israel. Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. And at this moment, God introduces you to the dysfunctional family. After all, when you have to turn evil to good, that presumes that there's evil. So Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is going to really show you an evil family. They are entirely dysfunctional. What do we have here? Well, we have Jacob's family, and you have Joseph, and we think, oh, yeah, I remember this story. Joseph with his dreams and his bullying brothers. What a dysfunctional family. Those wicked older guys bullying this little cute kid. All he had was these dreams. I mean, what a, I mean what, what's the harm in that? Look, look at the first phrase. Joseph, when 17 years of age, I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, cute little kids weren't 17. 17-year-old <laughs> are your freshmen in college. Trust me, I've got experience. 
We're not talking about cute, little, innocent, humble, don't know better kind of children. They know. And if they're talking about their dreams and they're doing all kinds of things, it's not innocent. Joseph is a bad boy. And he's not a bad little boy. He's really a bad young adult, trash-talking to his older brothers. That doesn't exonerate them. It just means the whole family's dysfunctional. And Jacob, the schemer, he doesn't help. Why? Because he's a schemer. Look at him. He puts Joseph over, even though he's a youth, younger than all the other brothers, he puts him over the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. This is flagrant partiality. How is it that the younger son watches over the adult sons, and why? Because they're the sons of the less favored women. Absolute partiality, causing complete disruption in the family. And it doesn't really help that Joseph brought back an evil report about them to their father. Now you have tattletale. So now you have partiality, now you have telling tales, and on top of that, the partiality gets more intense. Verse 3, now Joseph loved, or now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. Joseph, Jacob, doesn't even hide that he's a schemer. He makes it flagrant. Everyone knows that Joseph's the favorite one, and not only that, he made him a very colored tunic. Actually, in Hebrew, the language is a, a, a garment of, with long sleeves. A garment with long sleeves. You can actually cross-reference this in 1 Samuel chapter 13. The same language is used there. And you say, well, why does that matter? I thought it was the color. No, it wasn't the color that really distinguished this. It was the amount of cloth used. And you say, why? Well, because back then they had this rational notion that the more you pay the more you should get. I know, in our culture today, you pay more to get nothing. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But back then, they made sense. And therefore, you pay more to get more. And so Joseph gives a long sleeve garment, the most expensive garment, to his son, Joseph. Even though Joseph isn't the oldest son, he's practically the youngest son, one of the youngest at least. And this is clear partiality, but it raises an issue. And the issue is this. By giving that garment, which is a garment associated with royalty, here is what Jacob is saying. I think Joseph is the line of the seed. He's made his choice. He thinks Joseph is the line of the seed. He thinks Joseph is Genesis 3.15. That's where it's all going. Is it? Well, we don't know yet, but that's, that's Jacob's vote. And that gets everybody mad. The partiality, the telling of tales, the, the intense dysfunction of this family. It just it makes the brothers irate. And in verse 4, how... Much do they hate Joseph? It says this, they could not speak to him in peace. That's putting it charitably. You have to remember this, that the word peace in Hebrew is shalom. And how do you say hi to people? You say shalom. So what is the idea? They couldn't even say hi. They couldn't even say hello. It wasn't even that they couldn't have a conversation in peace. They didn't have a conversation. They didn't talk. Why? Because they couldn't even start the conversation. They couldn't say hello. There is no such thing as talk at the dinner table in those days for that family. They just had silence. That's all they had. They just sat down. They didn't even say, pass me the butter or whatever. They just said, nothing. That's all they did. That's how dysfunctional this family is. Well, at least the brothers couldn't say hello. Joseph can talk a lot. And in verse 5, Joseph has dreams. And you say, is it wrong for Joseph to tell his dream? Of course not. But the way he did it, it was arrogant. And he, he, I just love this. He just says it in Hebrew. He says, you are bowing down over and over and over to me. Do you really have to say it that way? No, of course you don't have to say it that way. Unless you just want to offend them, which is exactly what Joseph wants to do. He has no reverence, no respect for his older siblings. He has no respect for his brothers. And that just gets them so mad. I love it. Verse 8. Are you really going to reign over us? That's what the brothers say. Or are you really going to rule over us? You'll never do that. Over our dead body. That's what they, now they just hate this guy so much more for his dreams and his words. That's what it says in verse 8. They hate him. This is a dysfunctional family. When they're silent, they hate each other. When they talk, they hate each other more. 
That's what this family's like. Evil to good, you got to have evil. And it just gets so bad. This is just amazing. That when Joseph tries to go visit his brothers to kind of spy on them a little bit, verse 19 of chapter 37, I love it. The, The brothers say, oh, here comes this dreamer. In Hebrew, the word dreamer is dream master. You know, you got thigh master, you got slurpy master, you got slushy master, you got dream master 2000 here. In verse 19, the brother, oh, dream master, he's coming. And then their next phrase, you, you just cannot believe how much hatred there is. So now let's come and kill him. You know, maybe punch him, maybe rebuke him, you know, maybe spank him, kill him. And then after you kill them, then you cast them into one of the pits. They've got a whole plot. This is premeditated. That's how much hatred there is. Reuben heard this. Oh, and now we meet another contender for who's the one in the line of the seed. Jacob thought it was Joseph. Reuben thinks it's himself. Go, Reuben. And Reuben says, well, no, let's not strike down his life because then maybe my father will love me again and maybe I could be the firstborn child because I actually am the firstborn child, but he disqualified himself before. And so is it Joseph? Is it Reuben? We don't know yet. But here's what they do. They throw Jacob into a pit. And just to show you how callous they are, after they throw him into the pit, 37 verse 25, it says this, they sat down to eat a meal. Here's Joseph in a pit. Guys, guys, let me out. Hello. And you know what they're doing? They're enjoying lunch. They think it's the best thing ever. They're just relieved. That's how much hatred there is. Well, who's the line of the seat anyway in this dysfunctional family? Is it Joseph? The tattletale? The partiality one? Is it Reuben? The one who's the incompetent leader? Nope. Sure looks like this guy comes up. Judah. And Judah says, hey guys, what gain is it that we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. For the first time ever, the first time ever, these brothers who never get along, who never talk with each other, who only talk and things get worse, for the first time they actually get along around one guy, and it's Judah. It's Judah. He's a great leader, but a great leader who does bad things with his leadership, like sell your brother into slavery. Just because you're a good leader doesn't mean you're good. It reminds me sometimes when my kids come up to me and they say, Abba, Abba, do you think I'm good? You know, the Bible says no one's good. And I say, you're good. They say, oh, really, Abba? At being wicked. Judah is that. He's good at being wicked. He just sold his brother into slavery. This is crazy. Welcome to the dysfunctional family. You want to talk about evil to good? You got to talk about evil. You got to talk about evil. This is a a family of partiality. This is a family that tattles on itself. This is a family that doesn't have any respect. This is a family that can't talk to each other. This is a family that when they talk to each other gets worth. This is a family that wants to literally kill each other. This is a family that sells itself into slavery. This is a family whose sole leader is good at being bad. This is a wicked family. And you say, what good could come out of this? That's a great question. And it's instructive. There will be good from this moment. And it's a reminder. Our God turns evil to what? Good. And that's not a fairy tale. That's not just a light cosmetic change. Real evil to good. But just to prove it in the immediate end, this is astounding. All that God has done. Multicolored, long-sleeved tunic and the like. They kill a goat, dip the tunic in blood, verse 31, and they brought it to their father, this garment. And they said, we found this. Please recognize it, whether it is your son's tunic or not. And he, that is Jacob, recognized it. He said, it's my son's tunic. 
And with that, the sons deceived their father using a garment. You say, what's the good in that? That's wrong. You're right. It is wrong of them. But here's what's catching, so catching. Ten chapters before Genesis 37. Genesis 27, verse 23. There was a son. His name was Jacob. And he put on a hairy garment. And he went to his father. And he went to his father to deceive him. To pretend that he wasn't Jacob. He was who? Esau. And you know what the text says? The text says, Isaac, Jacob's father, felt his garment. And it says this, he did not recognize that it was Jacob. This time, God says, you're going to recognize this. Same words in Hebrew. Why? Jacob, your sin will find you out. You thought long ago that you got away with your scheming with God. You thought long ago that you could trick your father and there was no consequence. You thought long ago that God didn't care about the wrong that you had done. You're wrong. Jacob, God is not mocked. You will reap what you have sown. And what you did will now be done to you. Why did God design this whole thing? In part, in part, it was to discipline the schemer, Jacob. That's evil to good. Brothers and sisters, sometimes evil occurs in our lives because it's the discipline of God. And when that happens, at that moment, you have to understand that's not evil. They might have meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? For good. And we learned that. And we learned that. That's the life of Jacob. Then you have not only the life of Jacob, here's the second point. You have the life of Judah. You have the life of Judah. Chapter 38, Judah. So we've talked about Jacob, and we talked about a dysfunctional family. And a lot of times, when you talk about Genesis 37 through 50, you think of the Joseph story, because it's all about Joseph. And that's why people get really confused with chapter 38, because it's about Judah, not Joseph. But what did we learn? Who is the line of the seed? Who is the only leader that Israel will listen to? Who is the only one that the family will listen to? It's Judah. So of course we would expect that God would focus on Judah. He's a crucial individual. This isn't just the Joseph story. This is the Judah story. And that's why we have Genesis chapter 38. Because this is a very important person. However, what we also learn and what will be amplified in chapter 38 is this simple truth. That Judah's good at being bad. And he really is bad to turn evil to good. You don't just need to turn Jacob's family around. you got to turn Judah around. And Judah really is bad. He may be in the line of the seed. He may be an excellent, charismatic leader, but he's bad. He is evil. And how do you know that? Well, he's lustful. Verse 2. He just looks and he takes. Even though the person's a Canaanite, it doesn't matter. He just lusts and he takes. And he's a bad parent. (coughs) Verse 7. A bad parent. He raises people to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, such that Yahweh kills them. Then his other son is equally bad, demonstrating the pervasiveness of this wicked parenting. And in verse 9, that's what takes place. And that's what's illustrated. And then he's a bad in-law. He's a bad parent. And he's a bad parent-in-law. Verse 11. He tells his daughter-in-law, live as a widow, and he's just lying to her. He's not going to raise up a seed on her behalf. He's not going to try to help fulfill her family. He's not doing that at all. And so this is a guy, Judah, and this needs to be clear. He's impulsive, he's selfish, and he doesn't want any responsibility. That's Judah in a nutshell. He is evil. He's completely narcissistic. We have to understand that. And you know who understands that better than probably any of us in the room? It's Tamar, his daughter-in-law. You know, want to know why? Because she realizes what Judah is doing, 
And so she comes up with a plan that utilizes his narcissism, impulsiveness, selfishness, and lack of responsibility against him. You can see it. Look. Look at 38, chapter 38, verse 1 and 2. Notice it talks about Judah turned aside. And then, verse 2, Judah saw. Look at this, verses 15 and 16. After Tamar wraps herself like a prostitute, Judah saw her. And verse 16, he turned aside to her. Why does Judah do the same thing up above that he does later on? Simple, because Tamar knew exactly how to manipulate Judah. He knew, she knew exactly how this guy worked. She had him dialed in because she understood his completely sinful and debauched character. So she exposed him. And she used Judah against Judah. She gets pregnant. And Judah gets indignant when he finds out. He gets so irate, so self-righteous. He says, she should die. Burn her. And then Tamar says, well, actually, the guy who's guilty of this is the guy whose signet ring and whose goat and whose rod and staff are these. Who is it? And Judah realizes it's him. Judah was self-righteous. Do you know what Judah says of her in the end, verse 26? She is more righteous than I. What did she expose? Judah is a self-righteous hypocrite. It's a moral lesson, to be sure. Lots of obvious moral lessons here. But a moral lesson that sometimes we can be so proud and we can put on this hypocritical facade and we are just asking to be exposed by people who are truly righteous. We need to be aware of that. But at the same time here, she has exposed Judah for who he is. He's evil. How do you turn evil to good? Well, it presumes that you're evil. Judah is really evil. Evil, evil. So wicked. He's a good leader at being bad. And we see it. And you might say, well, how is this going to turn good? Well, in part, just like with Jacob, we'll have to see how the whole story plays out. And God will change even a wicked man like this and transform in in astonishing ways. But there's still immediate good. There's still immediate good. Notice what happens. Tamar is pregnant. She gives birth. And the birth of her son, the firstborn, verse 29, his name is Perez. His name is Perez. And that's a distinctive name. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, in the genealogical line of the Lord Jesus Christ, Guess whose name is mentioned? Judah begat Perez by Tamar. This is the messianic line continued. This is actually one of the final births of that seed line in the book of Genesis. And what's the lesson? It's simple. Even when things are so wicked and people act so depraved, and people are complete narcissists, and people are absolute hypocrites, and it's outrageously sinful, God's plan still moves forward. His plan of the seed still marches forward in spite of all people. It's important for us to realize this. God turns evil to good. You cannot forget that. Even in the times when there is such darkness and sin, God's plan moves forward. And so we have Jacob and we have Judah, chapters 37 and 38. And now we move to another J individual, and that's Joseph. Joseph. And that's chapter 39 and moving quite a bit forward all the way to chapter 47. And let's go through this rapidly. Joseph goes down to Egypt, and we know immediately he's put into the house of Potiphar, who's a captain of a bodyguard. That's an executioner. That's what bodyguard has implied as part of the role. And here's what's amazing. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 39, it says that God blessed this house, and it began to succeed, and it began to prosper. Why? Because God made a promise to Israel. Those who bless you will be blessed. And we start to see that working here. And in doing so, God turned evil to what? Good for a household. Not Joseph, but Potiphar. Potiphar's house. And that's amazing. Evil to good. 
But it's not just Potiphar's household that's being turned to evil to good. It's Joseph. It's Joseph. Do you remember Joseph's problem? He doesn't respect anybody. Do you remember Joseph's problem? He doesn't revere God. And as God works in his life, and as God is humbling him and bringing him and refining him, Joseph is confronted with this temptation. And we know it very well. The master's wife wants him to commit adultery with her. And we know his answer. His answer is, verse 9, There is no one greater in this house than I, and my master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? In one sentence, what does he show? For the first time in his life, he actually respected another human being above himself. He doesn't trash talk his master. He doesn't denigrate his master. He reveres him. And even more than that, he doesn't just revere a master that is earthly. He reveals and reveres his heavenly master. God is doing a work in his life. We start to see evil being turned to what? To good. And you might say, well, then good. He's been turned good. So God should just unleash him and and bless him and reward him. So what actually happens after he does the right thing? He gets sent to prison. Lesson, just because you do one thing right and just because God is working on you doesn't get you out of a trial. Sometimes it gets you further into it. And that's okay. Because even then, God is still working evil to what? To good. To refine you. There's further refinement there. And in fact, it's amazing because God begins to bless what's happening in the jail. It's the continuation of Genesis chapter 12. We know this because God said, blessed are those who bless you. And so wherever... Joseph goes, there's a blessing. And there's an additional irony to the whole situation. Because in Genesis chapter 40, verse 3, we learn that uh, the, the jail is in the basement of Potiphar's house. So Joseph really didn't move very far. All Potiphar did was tell Joseph, go downstairs. And then while he's there, Potiphar comes to visit him and says, hey, you did a really great job upstairs. Let's replicate it down here while you're here. You know, that's all that happened. By the way, that all implies that Potiphar knew Joseph was innocent. Joseph regained his integrity. Joseph changed. And Joseph was being changed and continued to be refined in prison. And in fact, even in Genesis 40, we we learn that It may seem random to us, but we know nothing is random. God is refining, and God is making opportunity for Joseph as he interprets these dreams. And Joseph, well, even though he's being sanctified, he never lost his sense of humor, his sense of wit. Because as one guy, the cupbearer, tells him his dream, he says, Hey, guess what? Within three more days, Pharaoh lift up your head and restore you to the office. Wonderful. And so the other guy, the baker, he he gets kind of bold, encouraged. I had a really similar dream. And so he goes to Joseph and relays the whole thing to him. And and Joseph answered and said, within three more days, verse 19, Pharaoh, he's going to also lift up your head. And And the baker's so excited. Yay! Off of you. Oh, no. Poor guy. Joseph never lost his sense of humor, but God is sanctifying him. And in the midst of it all, Joseph requests of the cupbearer, remember me, remember me to Pharaoh. Did the cupbearer remember Joseph when he was restored? And the answer was what? Not immediately. Why? Because God had some more refining to do. Just because you do the right thing twice doesn't mean you get out of a trial. God may have much more refining in your life. And all of that is evil to what? To good. God really needed to purify this individual. And it really does work out for good because it sets up for what happens later. The cupbearer and the baker aren't the only ones who have a dream. Pharaoh does as well. He's desperate for an interpretation. Joseph comes and is introduced because the cupbearer remembers. And so there's nothing random. Everything is coming together. And we know the nature of the dream, that there will be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And so Joseph gives this wise plan. And at this moment, Israel, once again, is a blessing to the nation. And all nations and a microcosm are blessed in them. Why? Because Egypt will survive. Egypt will survive. And what is a famine that should crush and kill an entire nation, at least bringing them to their knees, becomes their golden opportunity to become a world superpower. I call that evil to 
good. And it's not just that Egypt is blessed that way. It's that Joseph is blessed that way. If you actually look at chapter 41, verses 51 and 52, it's amazing. God gives Joseph a new family. And notice what he names his children. And it just demonstrates he is understanding this lesson loud and clear. His firstborn Manasseh, this is what he said, because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He's forgiving. He's forgiving. Evil to good. What about Ephraim? He says this, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What does he recognize? I am in the land of affliction. This is not my home. I am suffering. I am weak. I am lowly here. But nevertheless, God has made me fruitful. That's evil to good. God is working out evil to good. He's worked out evil to good in immediate ways in Joseph's life, in Jacob's life, in Judah's life, in the household of Egypt. And not only that, I look at verse 57, the last verse of chapter 41. The whole earth came to Egypt to buy grain. The whole world survives because Joseph interprets a dream in the providence and sovereignty of God, and now the whole world is blessed in a microcosm by all of this. Evil to good, not just for Egypt. Evil to good, not just for Joseph. Evil to good, not just for Judah. Evil to good, not just for Jacob. Evil to good for the whole world. That's what God can do. That's the level that he does. But chapter 42 Okay, so we've got evil to good for Joseph, and we got evil to good for G- Egypt, and we got evil to good for the world. What about Jacob's family? What about Joseph's brothers? Are they changed too? And God now gives an opportunity to demonstrate what he's been doing in their lives all these years, maybe even 17 years away from home. Jacob's family comes down to buy grain. Joseph recognizes them. He recognizes them. And he doesn't see Benjamin there. So he accuses them of being spies. Why? Because Joseph has a mission. He wants to know what you do to Benjamin. Benjamin, after all, is the brother of the same mother as Joseph. And so he really wants to know, did you do to Benjamin what you did to me? Did you guys change at all? And what's amazing, Joseph hears these words He hears Benjamin's alive. And Joseph wants to see Benjamin. Why? Because maybe maybe they changed a little bit. Maybe these brothers, they they shifted. They they became a little more sanctified a little bit. But they really hurt Benjamin. They really maimed him. They really have been mistreating him. I want to see him. I want to see him and thereby know how much my brothers have changed. And we know that that's Joseph's agenda, and it's simply illustrated by this. Who does he throw in prison, awaiting for his brothers to return? He throws in prison, verse 24, Simeon. You say, why Simeon? Simeon's the second oldest. And he overhears, that is Joseph overhears Reuben saying these words, I told you we shouldn't have done this to Joseph. So he knows Reuben had nothing to do with it. So if Reuben, the oldest, had nothing to do with it, who should have been the next in line to stop it? Simeon. So he throws Simeon into prison. The brothers don't know what's going on, but God does. And so does Joseph. Joseph wants to see, brothers, have you changed? Did you even learn your lessons? And even within this, God is turning evil to good. Joseph, in his heart of compassion, gives them back the money, which would have been a tremendous amount. And that is good, but it still raises some issues because now they get even more nervous about returning back to Egypt. Not only do you have to bring back a brother, now you have to reconcile that it looks like you stole the money. And all of this, though, still is evil to good. You want to know why? Because it raises up who's going to be the real leader. Who's going to be the real leader? And guess who comes back in the picture? Reuben. Oh, and him again. And verse 22, or sorry, verse uh, 37 of chapter 42, Reuben says this. This is just hilarious. You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. Now, every grandparent here, listen to these words. Your son is saying, look, if I don't bring your prized child back, you can put your grandkids to death. Grandparents are like, I love my grandkids. That's the whole point. I hate you. You're the problem. (laughs) Reuben doesn't get it whatsoever. 
But you know who does? Judah. 43 verse 3. The narcissist. The selfish one. The one who never wanted to take responsibility. He said this. Chapter 43 verse 3. The man solemnly warned us saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So send him. Send him. And he says this. If I do not bring the boy back, I will be the guarantee for him. Verse 9. And I will be sin to you all my days. Now that's a powerful statement. In an honor-shame culture, death is the quick way out. The long punishment is every day you are sin to your family. You are the embodiment of everything they hate. And you bear that every waking second. And sleep is the only time maybe that it escapes your realization of how much a family hates you. And Judah said, I'll take that responsibility. The man who never wanted to take responsibility, the man who was self-righteous, says, I'll be sin. I'll be sin to you, Dad, if I can't bring Benjamin home. So with that kind of responsibility, Jacob sends Benjamin. They go down. Joseph sees it and weeps. Why? Because he starts to see that God is turning evil to good. The family has changed. It's, It's amazing. But Joseph needs to make sure one more time. He needs to make sure this. If they were put in the same situation that he was in, Joseph was in, would they do the same thing? And so he sets up Benjamin that he should be imprisoned. And all the brothers are distraught. And they want to defend Benjamin. Who's the one brother that comes forward? The brother who is a narcissist. The brother who was selfish. The brother who doesn't want any responsibility. The brother who's impulsive. The brother who sold Joseph to begin with steps forward. It's Judah. And Judah gives this amazing speech. It's spectacular. It's it's one of the most phenomenal and compelling and linguistically rhetorical speeches of the entire Bible. And he narrates of his remorse of what he has done in his past. And he narrates that his father, that is Jacob, has always loved Joseph and never stopped loving Joseph. And Joseph hears that and realizes God is doing a change in these people's lives. And then on top of that, this is where it gets phenomenal. Verse 32, the one who never wanted responsibility says... Your servant has become a guarantee for the boy to my father. For the first time, in a sense, he has taken responsibility. But it goes one step beyond that. Verse 33 of chapter 44. So now, please let your servant, that's Judah, remain instead of the boy as a slave to my Lord. And let the boy go up with his brothers. Take me instead. That's going beyond the level of responsibility. That's substitution. And at this moment, this is what you realize. This is Judah, and Judah is the line of the seed. This is what a king does. In fact, it's not just what a king does. This is what defines what it means to be Israel's king. It's not just that you're noble. It's not just that you're strong. It's not just that you're righteous. It's this, that you will give your life for your people. You will substitute for them. One seed, the seed, for the line of the seed. That is what the king of Israel does. And at this moment, Judah is not only in the line of the king and proven to be in the line of the king, he is the one that defines the line of the king. And we know where all of this goes. It ultimately goes to the cross where the son of God, the ultimate seed, the climax and culmination of the line of Judah lays down his life for his own. That's what this is all about. And Judah in this moment has codified all of that. God has turned evil good. And when he says these words, Joseph weeps because now he knows what God has always done. He has turned evil to good. Everything has changed. God's plan moves forward. Israel is reunited with the son that was lost. Now he's found. 
evil to good. They move down to Egypt, and with a land that Egypt thought was evil, Goshen now becomes good, and the, and the occupation that Egypt thought was worthless shepherding turns out for Israel's good, because that's what Israel does, and Egypt doesn't want anything to do with it, so they're isolated. And so they come down to the land, and in fact, it, it's just amazing. In chapter 47, verse 27, it says, now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they took possession of property in it, and listen to this, and were fruitful and multiplied. Where have you heard that language before? Genesis chapter 1. God says, my plan for creation, it's advancing. It's advancing evil to good. And where does this then go? Well, we talked about Jacob. We talked about Judah. We talked about Joseph, even the brothers. Here's the final J, the fourth scene, Jesus. Jesus. God's plan is advancing. And in chapter 48, we see it advancing. Jacob disseminates the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant on his children. And he even uh, switches around Ephraim and Manasseh, and people say, why? Well, because, again, the older shall serve the what? The younger. That is actually happening. But this time, Jacob doesn't have to scheme to get it. He just submits to get it. Evil is turning to good. And in chapter 49, there is a prophetic utterance tracing the destiny of every tribe of Israel eschatologically. Yeah, you might see some things initially fulfilled in their history, but it's all for their ultimate destiny in the end. And yeah, there are prophecies about Reuben, and there's prophecy about Simeon and Levi, but there's a prophecy about Judah. And it's this, that from the line of Judah, Shiloh will come. And the word Shiloh is the root word of shalom, which we get peace. There will be peace from Judah. A man who is the prince of peace will come. Why is he peace? Because he will tie his donkey to a vine. Think about that for a second. Who in their right mind would tie a donkey to their vine? The vine is weak. So either you got a really docile donkey that you don't need to tie to a vine because it's a docile donkey, or because vines are like trees. Because the world has been renewed. And along that line in Genesis 49, 10, and 11, and 12, it says this, that there will be so much wine and so much grape juice that people will wash their clothes in it. You say, really? Yeah, everyone will be wearing purple. No, I'm just kidding. The, the idea is that grapes and, the, and, and wine and such will be greater than water. That's the bounty of the world. And it says this, that he will drink so much milk that his teeth will turn white. And you say, really? You can do that? You didn't need crest whitening? No. I mean, the idea is there will be so much bounty in the world, cattle and agriculture. There will no longer be world hunger. Why? Because there will be made all things new. The whole creation will be made new. Every molecule of it new. Every plant of it new. Every animal of it new. Why? Because the prince of peace will come from the tribe of Judah. That's what we call evil to good. That's what we're talking about. And it's with this in mind, and by the way, Shiloh, if you haven't put it together, is Jesus, the prince of peace. And that is why at the end of the book, when Joseph is confronted by his brothers. He says to them the programmatic words, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? For good. Why? Because at that moment, Joseph realized who God is. And at that moment, in Moses' intention, we know that it's not just about Genesis 37 through 50, but in the context, this is the answer to the whole book. The book began with evil coming into the world. Satan meant it for evil, but God has always meant it for what? For good. Because why? Shiloh will come. And he will make all things right. And the one riding on a donkey into Jerusalem will be the one who in the end rides his donkey to tie it to the vine of a renewed creation. It is because of what he did in Jerusalem, dying on the cross, rising again three days later, that he secures everything for his people. And he will make all things right and good. That is this message of the book of Genesis. And with that redemptive history launches forward. And yes, they are in Egypt at this time. But Jacob and Joseph both know God will have to get them out. Why? Because this plan will come, go forward. And what is this plan about? This plan is about that our God is with us and he fights for us and he fights to turn evil to what? To good. And he will do so. And he will do so ultimately in the gospel because we have to understand this. There is a problem of evil in this world, but it's not just that we talk about the problem of evil. We have to know this. We are the problem of evil. We are the problem of evil. We are under a death sentence. 
and that is evil. But it is just that we are condemned. But God has sent his son and his son has paid the price. And his son is raised on the third day to make all things new. So that those who believe in him, though they are the problem of evil, their lives can be redeemed. They can be forgiven. And not only forgiven, but made right. But not only made right, adopted as sons. And not only adopted as sons, regenerated. And not only regenerated, sanctified. And not only sanctified, glorified. And not only glorified, but the inheritors of all blessings forevermore of a world where Every molecule will be made right. And that, my friends, is evil to good. And that is what Genesis sets us forward on. And that has always been the plan of God since it is in the book of Genesis from the very beginning. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you. Thank you that you turn evil to good. Thank you that you do it for families, for individuals, for the world immediate for the world ultimate. Thank you that our ending is not like the world's ending. Our ending is evil to good because of a God who redeems. May we love you and champion you all the more for all that you accomplish and all that you do as you do this glorious and unimaginable work of salvation. All glory be to you and your son, the seed, Shiloh, the shepherd, the stone, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.